This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Komisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome to season two of our podcast, which we're calling Lunch Pail VC. And this is where no fleece is allowed, my friends. Wait, wait, wait look at this. Fleece. Well, come on, Commissar. You're, 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 you're going you're gonna to throw me off. You're going to throw me off in my opening comments like that. Semmel and Commissar are both wearing fleece. Am, am I on the wrong podcast right now? <laughs> Uh, okay, well, let, let's try this again. You know, I want to welcome you to season two of our podcast, which we're calling Lunch Pail VC. It's where no fleece is from me, but apparently everybody else is wearing fleece. So I guess um, that's how we roll this year. This year, we're going to give you a no bull look at the venture capital ecosystem. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, and I'm joined by good friend Randy Komisar. And we're going to be talking a lot about how people actually run their venture firms, not the, oh, what the last deal I did was, or, oh, how cool my friend is that I met at Stanford the other day, but how you actually run your fund, the nuts and bolts of it, Komasar. What do you think? Well, Paul, it's great to be back for another season. In this season, we're going to transition from the lessons from our mentor, our good friend, Bill Campbell, into some deep dives from world-class experts in our industry. That's right. And I always say it's funny that venture capital is one of the only industries without a real professional development endeavor, the way you were if you were a lawyer or a doctor. We're supposed to just learn it all on the job, right? Well, exactly. I mean, this season is intended to help others in the industry learn from some of our friends who are world-class innovators at growing companies. And of course, we'll continue to take our lessons from our mentor, Bill, into these conversations. And if you remember from last season, Bill thought you could divide VCs into market pickers, people pickers, and product pickers. So I figured we'd start off with one of each and let them explain their philosophies of finding great investments. That's great. And I got one of the great people pickers I can think of. We're here with the now very famous Semmel Shaw. I, I can't believe I could say I knew you when before you were <laughs> as famous as you are, Mr. Haystack, one of the most prolific bloggers, Twitterers and God knows waters of the social media space. I'm sure he's on TikTok now doing awesome videos. I see my nieces do that. I'll bet I'll bet they move a little better than you do, though. Semmel. We're going to kick this off. You know, obviously, we'll talk a little bit about your background, Semmel, but we're going to really hit an interesting topic today. And it is in, in this framework that Randy talked about, about people picking. We're going to talk about how you source a deal. I mean, you talk about what the business is all about. At the end of the day, if you can't source a deal, you're not really good. And so, uh, Semmel, we're thrilled that Haystack has been as successful as it's been and very happy to have you as a guest today, Semmel. Yeah, thank you um, for b both of you guys. I mean, Paul, it's been just great knowing you over the years and just working and learning from you and Duncan and Rich and, and Eric more recently. And Randy, I've heard a lot about you in the past from a lot of your partners at Kleiner. So it's great to have like a more intimate discussion. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. In fact, Semmel, I think maybe Mike Abbott introduced me to you yeah. Many years ago. Yeah. Actually, I still am in touch with Michael quite frequently and trying to pull him into doing other things. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw him yeah. for coffee a couple of weeks ago. He seems to be doing great. He really loves oh, yeah. going back to doing real work at Apple from being an investor. And he, he may in the future, depending on how the cards sort of are laid out, he may be very useful to a certain social media company again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So for you who don't know, we're recording this here in the second week of April, and there's a guy named Elon Musk looking at a company called Twitter. Um, so I'm sure by the time this actually hits the press, whatever has happened has happened by then, Semmel. <laughs> but God knows what it'll be by the time we hear this. Yeah, thing. yeah. We should we should lay out our predictions here, you know. <laughs> yeah, we might have to end with that. We might have to end with that, especially with you, such a savvy guy for basically the media ecosystem. And you know I've been involved in a lot of stuff that at the confluence of, of politics, media, etc. So you and I both not afraid to take some arrows in our back. For sure. Let it rip. So, Samo, let me kick off with this question, and I really am thrilled that you're here as one of our guests because you're really the perfect person to talk to about sourcing a deal because, let's be honest, Haystack's pre-seed, you hung out with me at Bullpen, which is post-seed, you worked a bit with Lightspeed, which is A and Beyond, and you were a GGV late stage. So you've sourced a deal all the way from inception stage to late stage growth capital. I'd love to hear your philosophy about how you source a deal, how it's different at those stages, mm -hmm. and uh, what's the same, what's different. So maybe I'll just start off with with my philosophy. But you know, as a as a mega disclaimer for for you guys and anyone listening, I think there are a hundred and one ways to source a potentially good investment or high potential investment. And so, to me, it's not about if you're a player on the field, do you do that the right way or the wrong way? It's like it's a way that can get to the outcomes you eventually need because there's so much in this business we can't control. And one of the things we can control is who we spend time with mm -hmm. and who we have conversations with and who we help out in the community. And so for me, if I were to like summarize it in 280 characters going back to Twitter, and this really comes from someone we all know dearly, Maples. I remember him saying many, many times, if I met two really smart people a day, every day for a month, I'm probably going to find a good investment opportunity in there. And so I think part of it is just meeting people and keeping your mind open to that. Now, my personal belief is that, and this is another Maples line, is that people can think of venture when they come into the industry, maybe they become an associate, a cleaner, they, they come in as a principal, a bullpen, what have you, it doesn't matter the firm. And they think it's a deal flow business. So how do I generate deal flow and how do I do that? And maybe for some people that works. I think what Maples articulated perfectly, which really resonates with me, is that it's a people flow business. And that when you meet a lot of people and you help them or you're direct with them or you're honest with them or you're swift with them or you even do things like say no in the meeting or get back to them in a, in a normal manner, over time, especially in the Bay Area and now in other places, that that network effect can compound of other people sending you things. And if you pay enough attention and filter up front, I think the deals come to you. And so that's my philosophy. And, and again, I don't want to say that that's the right way to do it. But I believe it's like Maples. It's a people flow business. And you, you meet interesting people, you treat them well, and good things happen. I mean, obviously, you're a people person and your track record attests to that. You also mentioned that there are many different styles that can yeah. succeed. Could you talk about a few yeah. of those other styles and how their approach could be different and successful? 
Yeah, and I made some notes on that. I think the big framing for, for us and the audience is, are you primarily getting inbound deal or people flow, or is it outbound deal and people flow, or is there a mix, or how does the mix change over time? And I think that's very dependent on where you sit in the ecosystem, where you sit geographically, what stage you're at. And so there's a lot of different permutations and combinations of this, that how it can work. But if we talk about like a pure inbound model, you know, what are the tactics that some people will use? You could say people using Twitter or blogging or content creation more broadly are kind of creating a lighthouse model where you know, you have the analogy of ships passing through in the ocean sort of without orientation and the lighthouse provides them a potentially safe harbor for an evening. Then you have what, you know, is a celebrity star power of like, man, like this person built this company, then they were the CFO of Stripe and then they're doing this and now they're doing this. You can't talk to three people better than this person on this topic. Mm. Or, you know, I think one canonical example is like Reed Hoffman is like, you have in that day and age, you had the operator, he was a successful investor, he was incredibly nice to everybody, incredibly thoughtful. If Reed Hoffman calls you an entrepreneur, how do you compete with that? Mm. And then I think the other kind of like inbound strategy is you hit your star to a firm and you say, hey, I'm, you know, I could go start my own firm or I could go work at this new firm in New York City, but like, Randy or Mike Abbott or John Doerr calls me and says, like, come here and sit with us at a place of repute. And and that gives you an edge in some of those deals. So like I think those are like the common inbound hmm. models people use. Now the the outbound ones, there's many, many more. I made a whole list of them. But what's interesting about how the business is changing is that I think if we had had this discussion just even three years ago, I wouldn't have as many outbound ideas. Hmm. But today, 2022, there's a plethora of them. Someone's just to like maybe scratch the surface a little bit is there's a firm, Bessemer, oldest venture capital firm around. They do phone banking. They're dialing, calling people directly, emailing people directly. Insight does this as well. There's Pioneered by Sequoia, but there's obviously scouts. So someone would say, why would I have 10 associates today when I can have 100 scouts? There's pipeline management systems, Affinity, Atlas, all these other things that can help you track all the inbound. So there's there's enablement of it. And th there's so many things, depending on how deep you want to go, there's a lot there. Oh, no, Semmel, this is, this is I, I can't tell you how excited I am that yeah. not only are you a guest, but you did your homework in advance of being a guest, right? Oh, yeah. he, he's actually looking up a list of things that he wrote down. I mean, Semmel, when's the last time you did a podcast where you actually did homework? I can't tell you when and where I wrote it down, but it took a few minutes. But I mean, this is a topic I feel like I do know. Well, yeah, talk, talk no, a little bit more about keep it. Keep going then. on the album. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. So so let's let's talk about, there's one other inbound thing I forgot to mention, which is a vertical focus. So like mm. Paul and I could say, okay, in our next act, we're going to create a Bitcoin maxi fund or a crypto fund. And, you know, we're just going to focus <laughs> on DeFi or something. And so people have been doing that too, as the industry matured. But if we go into outbound, Here's what I've had listed. There's feeder systems like accelerators, scouts, uh, angelist syndicates you can follow. There's online platforms like, you know, I think Y Combinator will move to crowdsourcing because all this stuff is on video now. There's angelist, obviously. There's all these other aggregators. There's the phone banking and robocalling. 
there's using scouts, there's actually doing fund to fund investing. So like you have, a, you know, Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon fam famously created their own family office to invest in funds. You have Sequoia Heritage, you know, even people don't realize this, but Benchmark had scouts and in investing in funds occasionally, even as a smaller kind of craft fund. And then you have all the tools and enablement to help you do that. So I think the way to summarize this is like for classic venture, let's put Insight and Bessemer aside for a minute. For classic venture, I think it used to be, hey, we need bodies. Like maybe Kleiner and, and maybe Randy, this is a question for you. Kleiner in 2008 was like, okay, we have our GPs, our kind of junior partners, our principals who kind of made it. And then we have a battery of associates. Well, in 2022, do you need the battery of associates anymore? I think that's a, it's a great question to ask. I'm not, I'm not really sure. And I think a lot of the move towards that, and again, you know, pioneered by Sequoia, is that in the past, VCs, I think, had market power for the deals would come to them naturally, and they weren't potentially maybe compensating those people who were bringing the deals to them that way. Now the people who are bringing the deals have a direct source of compensation, right, if, if that deal turns out to be good. And so it makes sense more economically as well. And actually, those people are closer to the fire than, than any investor would be. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 that resonates with me a lot. I mean, up until certainly the probably the time I got to Kleiner, there's a real sense that deals came to you, that yeah. if you were Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia or any number of the top tier venture firms, you actually sat around and took meetings and and you didn't have to even leave the office or leave Sand Hill Road. And that is fundamentally not the case today. I mean, it is radically different today. You got to be quick. You got to be out there looking for deals. You got to be selling yourself and selling your money into deals. And that is a very different sort of mentality than yeah. the mentality that I entered the business with years and years ago, where that, that wasn't what I had to do. I want to riff on one thing you've got, though, there, Semmel. Your idea that the associate is less and less important in the modern world, I think that's actually a very profound idea. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that I've seen in more kind of up-and-comer funds, the bullpens of the world, the associates are important because there's a brand-building endeavor, quite frankly, that the associates still do. But in the more incumbent places, you're exactly right. What is the job of an associate at a largely incumbent well, fund at this point? Well, Paul, this, I'm so glad you asked this question because I will answer this with a bang. And I, I've said this publicly many, many times. I think being in venture capital for more than a couple years, unless you really love it and are committed to it, is a complete, absolute banging waste of time. <laughs> but like, if, if you're out of school and you're 21 and 22 and you get a job at Excel and that's your survey into the ecosystem, great. Or you get a job at Bullpen, come in, great. You don't like it at the end, you're 24, you're 25, right? And you've met a lot of people. I think the trouble starts forming when you're post MBA or you're coming in and like, you're, you're just trying to do these deals. And like, it is a complete waste of time unless you're really, really committed to it. And if you don't like it, get out immediately, like get out because you're not going to gain any skills that are, that are going to transfer over anywhere else. I mean, I've seen this with so many operators coming into venture where in two years, like they just don't even, they couldn't even go back into the ecosystem, you know? Uh, so technology is moving so fast. So I have a very strong point of view 
that if people are curious about venture, they should start early and, and figure out in the six to 12 months, like, do I love it or not? And it's okay if you don't love it. So Semmel, let's get back to sourcing for a minute. Yeah. But ironically, this is all about sourcing, right? The network of people in your partnership is what sourcing is about. Now, let me tell the audience one thing. I know most of the people here probably know who you are, but I got to tell them a little story about Haystack because I remember when you were starting the firm, you were spending time hanging out at our office at Bullpen, and you said to me the following thing, and I'll never forget it. I was sitting there in the office with Rich Melman, and you said, you know, Martino, if I do this thing, Haystack, I want to find founders before they even know that they want to start a company. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, God damn, that sounds pretty freaking hard. <laughs> so now you went, you've done it. You've literally been doing this for a decade. You are finding people at like prior to inception stage of their company when they think they might just want to start a company. So let's start talking about the pre-seed and seed and the early stage sourcing strategies, because that is a whole different game yeah. than, than what you do. And we'll, we'll hit mid and later, but let's talk about early stage mm -hmm. and how crazy, quite frankly, what you did at Haystack was. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. I think one caveat would be, as I think seed today has like three or four different land masses attached to it. So it's like this mm -hmm. rugged terrain that it's a really, really different. And I want to be clear too, like, we'll invest in just people or like help them just start with the idea or company, or sometimes we'll wait and like a, it could be kind of a post seed round, right? So like, I like to play right. across the landmass entirely knowing that the terrain is different yes. in those quadrants. But to me, it comes from like, if I were to summarize it to start, I would say it starts with, with two beliefs. One is like more philosophical and the other one is just an operational reality. The philosophical thing is that like I end up investing in technologies or things that have network effects or those kind of properties. But really, I believe that I'm giving money to the person creating that and then they're applying that. So, so I view myself as investing in the person philosophically, and that's just what I believe. I think the operational reality is that I can't control when I'm going to meet someone, if it's right when they're starting the company or they're raising a seed extension or or what have you. So I want to have the flexibility operationally to act when I when I meet them because you can't control that. Oh yeah, and just to clarify too, yeah. this is prior to Haystack being formed where the yeah. element of the pre-seed inception stuff was really, in my opinion, very novel. Of course, Haystack yeah. now across the entire seed ecosystem the, yeah. the inception stage investing, though, I just still remember scratching my head going, well, Semmel, that sounds like a 12 on a 1 to 10 in difficulty. I do think you know, even before I got into the game or Paul, you got into the game, there were certain firms and certain players at these firms, including Kleiner, that would fund people off a of PowerPoint, maybe from their portfolio or things like that, and had had wild success in doing that. So I don't think the concept was different. I just think as as the earlier stage, and Paul, you were like basically the first person to nail this, like people calling 15, $20 million round A's, it's all just been right. sort of escalation. I feel like I'm investing in the person and have to have the potential to have some connection with them in order to layer in more capital, to get the next follow-ons done, to feel like I'm connected to my work in sort of a squishy way. I need to feel like I can have some relationship, even if it's entirely an online or texting relationship with that person. And so that's my mental model of going, whereas like someone like maybe Don Valentine would famously say, 
you know, markets, 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 markets. Come on, sir. Come on. How much would Bill Campbell just just sit there and go, Simon, what the hell are you talking about? You have an online and texting only relationship <laughs> with your CEO. Do you know what the hell you're doing? <laughs> No, but that is the new world. It is. That, yeah. th- I mean, that that is. Semo, I'll bet some of your best CEOs. That is your primary mode of conversation, and that would be lost on a prior generation of investor. I think. What, what I would say is, if you look at my iPhone home screen, it's like Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram, iMessage, and I. I basically say our job as investors, once we commit and we can get back to sourcing, is okay. I commit to Randy funding Randy's company. I have to meet Randy online where he is. So if Randy likes using Yahoo Meet or whatever, <laughs> I got to meet him there because that's, you know, that's, he's in charge. By the way, Comostar, I think he was insulting you when he, when he, when he picked you for <laughs> the Yahoo Groups thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yahoo Groups, that, I just want to be clear. That was an insult, right? Right, Samuel? That was an insult to Randy by you <laughs> no, picking no, Yahoo no, Groups. No, no, no. He, at least he didn't say AOL no. Instant Messenger. Wait a minute, is that an so... insult? Because I'm on Yahoo Groups right now. So... <laughs> <laughs> The issue is to me is one of trust. And I think Mm -hmm. the issue for somebody like Bill Campbell or me would be until we were in person with somebody, I'm not sure we knew we could trust them or had the chemistry Mm -hmm. with them Mm -hmm. and knew we could have influence. And so, and I'm not saying this, that this new medium is not trustworthy. I'm saying it's a Mm -hmm. new generation that has figured out how to create trust or, or chemistry in that environment. Right. I can just speak for, for me on the investor side is that that was a transition for me. I would say it was a bumpy two to three month transition, but then I sort of trained myself to think about the net benefits outweighing the cost of it. I felt like someone mentioned to me, I can't remember who, but like referencing someone on book and off book might be a better barometer of gaining information on that person than me just assessing them. I think also like I can have more conversations over a period of time. I always say like as a line, if I sit with someone in conversation, like I'm talking to a founder now and I told her in the first meeting, she said, hey, this is a really great first meeting. What's your process? I said, if we talk for three hours over the next seven days, it doesn't matter when and how, I feel like I can get a sense of who you are. And so that's kind of the people reading piece. And then I think it just goes back to our job, which is like, I feel like our ability to influence or persuade as investors, that bar has gone up because founders have more market power, they have more options. And so the art of doing that has to elevate from our side. Instead of trying to over persuade, I try to just focus more on selection and remind myself like before we wire or commit to somebody like, hey, like that's like getting a tattoo, you know? (laughs) And and someone down the road is gonna look at my SVB ledger and ask about this cell. So hanging out where they are, obviously, key part to sourcing. And the technology by which you hang out with them or the modality has changed significantly over the last few years. Seed stage, very important people picking. Let's talk about maybe moving to the A stage. I was hanging out at Lightspeed hat on for a few minutes. The more traditional A, even before we get to the GGV stage. Let's talk about some differences there. Look, this company works. They're looking for an A round, which is 20 million bucks. I'll still never understand that, but that's that's a topic for another day. This is a 50-person company. It's clearly working. Talk to me about sourcing there versus hanging out at the university and making sure the cool kids know who you are. Yeah. So, and this is just coming from observation because I've never written a series A check or sat on a real board. So I just want to be clear with everybody. 
I'm, I'm very focused on that early stage. When I was the three years at GGV as a venture partner, they were actually in the process, Paul, of moving earlier. They did yeah. a bunch of A's and B's when I was there and tried to venture in the seed. But if I were to say Lightspeed or GGV or any other great fund that's looking at a Series A investment, how are they sourcing? I think today people are verticalizing and specializing at the GP level. That's been increasing over the last five, seven, 10 years, whatever you want to say. And then I think those people running those books are required to manage their own book to source. And what's changed from maybe what if we would have this podcast a few years ago is like the pipeline management and attribution. So I think as these firms have moved more to scouts and fund investing and like having quasi underlying portfolios, and then the GPs getting more vertically specific, one would hope there's a culture of accountability of like, okay, if this GP is in charge of fintech or this group is in charge of fintech that they're going to see the club deals okay and so i'll never forget keith raboy once tweeted like years ago said one of the best ways to raise a series a round is to get a lot of series a partner meetings <laughs> because then you get on the radar right <laughs> vcs don't want to admit this but i think the reality is that they want to know they're competing for something that their peers also view as interesting so Get the FOMO going is what you're saying. And, and that's the way, that's the advice to the founder on how, how you raise a good that's series That's how day. you get in the jet stream. Is like, you have to be able to come in and be like, Randy, great to meet you through Mike Abbott. Would love to chat. And then Randy goes like, what you, you know, what's going down? And I'll say, you know, I'm going to be down on Sand Hill or I'm going to be, I'm flying in San Francisco for a few, few days for a few meetings. Now the, the nuance here is that like, they want to know you're in their peer group or aspirational group. And so that that ends up being a filter for a deal. That, the, the, I think that's a big one. The best founders that I know raising capital are always raising money, but only calling it occasionally, meaning they are out there taking those meetings, telling their right. story, figuring out who's resonating with right. their story. And then when it yeah. comes time to call the chits in, they basically yeah. blow the horn and the money comes. The other guys, the ones who sort of figure out, well, I kind of need money in six months, so I better go raise money. And then they go quiet for another year. That's much harder. And I, I, I tend to find that they don't do it yeah. nearly as well. This, this goes into my, one of my persuasion sort of things. It was like, we're trying to train our founders to always keep in touch in a lightweight way. And they have to market and evangelize themselves, right? So that when the time comes to call in the thing that you're talking about, it's not dead cold. Now, if we go back to the sourcing side, it's like, okay, let's for founders get in the head of someone at Lightspeed or GGV or Kleiner or whatever great firm where someone would want a Series A investor. How do those people think about sourcing? So I think they think about it as one, one way they narrow their focus, to use a Slootman quote, is they will verticalize and say, I'm doing open source software developer tools productivity. I'm doing software as a service vertical SaaS. I'm doing fintech enablement, consumer, everything. So I think it's like getting into that jet stream and then knowing that that GP wants to know that they're either getting an early look on a high quality filtered team or that they're going to be competing with other people where if they run these repeated games of competition 10 times a year, they're going to get their fair share of those deals. And entrepreneurs don't realize that sort of funnel and how tight it gets at that stage. And then I think the other way of sourcing is like the GPs will either do personal investments if their firm allows them to. Some firms don't allow them to, which I think is crazy. Right. Some firms will have these scout programs. We all know how those scout 
programs are managed, it's a hot mess. Some firms will do underlying fund investments. There's varied accountability for managing and harvesting those underlying portfolios. So there's different ways that people do this. People will throw events and marketing, right? Or they'll do the dinners. So there, there are these like classic things that people, that the GPs will do to quote, narrow their focus. Yeah, we used to declare specialties and oftentimes we would declare a specialized fund which was really wasn't a fund at all. We'd sort of say, we're going to put $100 million into the iPhone in 2005 yep. or six or whenever it was. But yep. it wasn't like we took $100 million out of the, the broad fund and put into that. It was really marketing. It was saying to the world, we want those, those deals. Well, I think Kleiner and who else did this? Like Greylock for a period of time were smart in marketing it and again, they had the star power to do it too at the on the back end. But I mean, that kind of marketing definitely works. Founders look at it. And again, it goes back to the market power thing of like at that A and B stage, people want those logos. Yeah. Right. Something yeah. with it. Yeah. I, I, and I, you know, the other thing, <laughs> venture capitalists tend to be very susceptible to being seen as special. So when you've got entrepreneurs who can play to that in them, oh, you're special. I, I really want to work with you. <laughs> I think that you're that you can do an amazing job. And by the way, a good entrepreneur is saying that to five different GPs and five different firms. <laughs> but it is remarkable how um, responsive GPs are to that. If you've got enough time to build it in a credible way, you know, you've had lunch with them a number of times, you've had dinner, maybe yeah. you've seen them at a party and something like, boy, I'd really like to work with you. I, and I think Randy, what I would say is that all boils down to sales. And, mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And, and we're kind of making fun of the GP, but it's actually, all of these are proxies for how is this founder going to behave with a big customer they want to land or how are they going to mm -hmm. behave with this big recruit? We're going to send them from Amazon. They're all the behavioral proxies that actually are logical for them to hone in on. Yes. All right, Semmel, let's keep talking. So now you've sourced a deal or two. Yeah. We've talked about it throughout the ecosystem. Yeah. You got to get a yes, right? It turns out that sourcing a deal is only half the loaf of bread. How do you sell it internally? Yeah. It's time to go full court press. Are you, are you sending them the private jet? I know some firms do that. So talk to us about how you get that relationship, how you get to yes. And quite frankly, I, I know some stories like this. you got to tell me about a time you would not take no for an answer. Oh, sure. Me just sourcing, if you're coming in new and into the industry, you can hear ways you can tactically separate yourself from the pack. If you want to be good at sourcing and get your foot in the door. First, it's volume. How many people are you meeting? How many people are you seeing? And can you summarize and package information for the person you're reporting to? Now, how do you separate yourself further? You start layering in judgment and pattern recognition, either against the market, the founder, or the product offering. You start signaling, hey, I'm building a little bit of an encyclopedic sense about this, okay? And then the, the sort of like God mode of this is that you can actually stand up as a 22-year-old and have a have a firm back and say, I think we should do this because of A, B, and C. I've thought about this. I've slept on it. I'm willing to put it in writing that we should do it. And the, the reality is most people who want to be in venture can't do those three things. And the ones who can do the first and second things never get to the third step. I think that's very insightful. I mean, I, I can remember a number of very good investors who eventually left Kleiner and did well for themselves. But at Kleiner, 
they weren't capable of actually arguing their case in front of somebody like a John Doerr. So you've got people with the stature of somebody like John. And if John isn't immediately taken with your opportunity, then it's very hard to stand up to John. We, we try to design processes around that so that mm -hmm. the influence was more diluted in the organization. But that can be very difficult for a young person. You're coming into an organization like Kleiner, John Doerr's just come off of Amazon and Google and, and Netscape, and now you've got to argue with them around why your idea is better than he may think it is. And, and then I think this gets back to judgment too. For, so for someone young, we've seen over the last five, seven years, whatever, people who are younger associates will create private Twitter accounts to just create a timestamp record of saying, hey, you know, I totally. worked at so-and-so firm. I really wanted to invest in this company. <laughs> totally. And, you know, creating the track record of your judgment is super important. Imagine someone going to Paul looking for a role and saying, here are three years of tweets. You can see all the timestamps. You can see all the dumb ideas I had. You know, that's pretty powerful. Now, we haven't talked about the access piece too, right? You can just say this is a good deal, but like, can you get in position to win? That's absolutely right. I mean, look, once you've sourced the deal, you, you were selling as part of that process if you were any good at your job at venture capital. Right. And so now you got to get it over the goal line, right? I mean, yeah. the whole get to know you process is a bilateral process. Yeah. And so at some point it's, hey, you're going to take my money, right? I remember the first time I met Bill Campbell, Randy. Bill was no longer taking on new people to to coach. And Randy said, no, 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 you got to meet this Martino guy. You'll get along with him. And so Randy kind of gives me a briefing. He's like, look, Bill's not taking anybody on anymore, but, you know, go go, go be yourself. <laughs> and I didn't quite understand what that meant. And so afterwards, Campbell's like, yeah, you're an asshole from Philly. I'll work with you. And he said it to me. He was very clear. He's like, look, I'm at a stage in my life where I get to pick who I want to work with. I'm at a stage now where I literally don't need to work with people I don't like. I don't need to work with people who are going to cause me drama and headache. You're the kind of person I like to work with. You're the kind of person that my coaching will work well with. And that goes both ways, right? The CEO and that relationship with the venture person and the venture person's relationship back with the CEO. The Bill Campbell picture is the one I have in yeah. my head. And, and so I think I'm glad you said that, Paul, because, well, one, I'm just jealous. I never got to meet Bill Campbell. I feel like a hundred people I know talk about him like this profusely. So that was my miss. I do think a lot of founders generationally because of all the content marketing, which is a net good, they're very dilution sensitive in these rounds. And I think, I'm not saying dilution sensitivity isn't important, but I meet a lot of people who are doing it at the cost of these other things that we're talking about that may emerge later in life. The ability for someone in my seat to persuade has gone down for everybody. And the, the bar to, to persuade has gone up. How do you do that? You know, I found that very challenging, right? Because someone will say, well, I, I would love to work with you, but someone else is giving me three on 24 when I haven't done anything yet. And this is just my coping mechanism is I just explain my business model to them. And, and I just say, this is awesome. Like you should do what you want to do. But, you know, this is what I have to do. And again, to use a Maple's line is That's I right. want to get paid for the risk I take. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If Look, I can't tell you the number of times I think you and I revert to the exact same mode. God, I say, God bless. Go take that round. If that's the thing you're looking for, great. This is the thing I do. By the way, the thing I do, I'm good at. If that thing's the thing you want, I'm the person you want to work with. But that thing over there is almost something I, I don't even need to talk about it because it's not what I do. 
There, well, there's that. There's just like apples and oranges. And then there's like from Brad Feld, I kind of learned this too, which, which again, I think comes from starting to get some maturity of like in the business of like a little bit of Zen around. I want to see that you want to work with me too. Not that you have to like bow down to me or something. It's just like, Hey, I've expressed, I want to work with you. Like the way we express, we want to work with each other is we do something that's a little uncomfortable. Like we literally just had a founding team. It, it was a seed round of a really good team led by, you know, one of these big funds. And we were able to get in with like a 200K check. And we really like the team, good people, good operators. And we just said in the meeting, like, hey, there's no promise, but if there's an opportunity to invest ahead of the A, even on a note, we'd want to do that with you because it's a sub-skill position for us. And this weekend he called us and honored that after a year later. Great. And it was great. And he was like, you know, we're doing it. I remembered our conversation. I want to do it. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, it's not, doesn't happen all the time. But those are the kind of situations you want to be in. Samuel, educate me on this. I've always assumed that writing the sorts of checks that, that you write or at the stage you write them, that there's mm -hmm. always room to fit you in, that you don't have to win a deal. You don't have to use your elbows the way we did at Kleiner, which got mm -hmm. to be really tedious, yeah. frankly, because owning the whole deal was the only way we could put enough money to work and get enough ownership. I frankly mm -hmm. found that to be a huge distraction. And my general sense was that if you had a smaller fund and you brought to the table something like you bring to the table, which is great judgment, great network, great advice, that there's always room. There's always room to let you into the deal. Is that not the case? That would be like the first or second paragraph of what an LP in Haystack would write internally, which is, I never want to be able to say, oh, this 200K check I got, it's meaningful for our fund. It is. And also, I feel like the mega thing going on, Randy, is like there's a fight for ownership. So you have venture firms scaling and needing to deploy more capital and, quote, own more risky assets. And you have the founders who are reading Hacker News, Startup Digest, you know, Naval's tweets and all this great content that's amazing. And everyone's training them to manage their dilutions. The battle lines are just getting drawn and drawn and drawn. For me, I didn't want to get into the ownership model game because I felt like if you start out by saying I need, as a venture investor, 10 points of your company up front, how many things are you just going to be completely abstracted away from? You, you won't even be in the consideration set. And then the other problem is if you are in that consideration set, the top two or three players in that consideration set are actually doing and delivering the things you're just blabbering about, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> right. They're actually good yeah. at it. And so my line of the founders is, hey, if your company is successful and you don't have like 17 founders, you will always own more than us. And so you will be voting our shares. So our advice will be advice. You can actually take that advice because your decisions impact us. I think it came was like when I got into the industry, it was like, okay, your, your VC will take 20 at the A and maybe 10 or 15 at the B. And now it's just moved to like, you know, the top tier firms, if they're competing for an A, they'll take the 10 to 15% for the A. Yeah. So that model has changed. And so I don't want to be the guy starting at 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I started in this business, we're getting... 25, 30% would not be, would not be a, a too big an ask. You'd end up usually 20, 25%, but that wasn't too big an ask. You're writing checks mm -hmm. that are much more modest than they are today. 
Of course, the outcomes were also more modest, so the returns were more modest. But nevertheless, the idea was we need to take ownership if we were going to put our time into it. So ownership wasn't an issue with capital. It was an issue with time. Mm. And so if you were going to take a board seat, and that was the model clearly at Kleiner Perkins, which was if we're going to lead, we need to take a board seat because we add value at the board. That was our belief anyway. To get rewarded for that, we need to own enough of the company to do that. Now, what we didn't do, which I think would have been smart, was to say, well, there's some companies we're not going to lead, and so we're going to take less, and we can just participate. That wasn't the mentality. I think that became more the mentality over time. Yeah. And, you know, in a, in a baby version of that for Haystack, which is a small fund, I do that as well. So I tell the founders, I can sit in the driver's seat if I feel like it, or you want me to. I can sit in the passenger seat and shotgun, or I can sit in the back seat and I want to have that kind of flexibility. So for me, I feel like my business is constrained by being excited about working with a technologist or product person who's working in a market that I find is interesting, who has a unique insight. If I'm lucky enough to find one in one month or every two months, Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to think, I don't want to be fighting about where I sit in the car. I just recently did a deal in which I was along for the ride. And I remember going into the partnership meeting literally saying, do you know how cool it is that so-and-so is actually driving the bus on this one? Like, I'm value-add. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But it is nice yeah. that someone else is actually driving the bus yeah. because this is actual leverage on my time. I can take the second and third chair a few times, mm-hmm. and then we can actually do more good deals, guys. This is a good thing. Oh, I'll give you a very live example of this. We did a $1.5 million pre-seed in this person coming out of Google great person, built a relationship with him, wonderful person. And we cut back our position because we had two friends who wanted to come into the deal. Mm -hmm. And even internally, we were saying like, well, no, we have our 10%, like we want it. And I just said, no, like we want these people in because it broadens our network for the next round. And lo and behold, one of the friends we brought in and it was was like a $6 million seed in the next round kind of went sideways. And then he made a last minute call to like a great seed investor and term sheets coming. And then I mentioned the people that I work with internally, like that's why we're not greedy about it up front because you never know who's going to make that intro. Like all the 10 intros we made, only one was progressing. Mm -hmm. So if we took all of it and didn't have an incentive for other people to come in, what would have happened? I don't know. We would have extended it or done it later. It wouldn't have been catastrophic. I also think that like, Taking all the rounds up early, even though that may fit an investor's model, may not be the right thing because actually the risk is greatest earlier. So it would make sense to spread it out a little bit. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. The way that the seed rounds became as sharp elbowed as they have strikes me as completely insane. You're going into a pre-product company in an A with a star founder and you're going to take the whole (laughs) round, right? I mean, that flies in the face of the way I learned how to do the business, but the sharp elbows because of the fund size requirements made people start behaving in this anti-syndicate way. I much prefer when I have a strong syndicate. My best deals, my best deals every time I have a strong syndicate and I took a couple less Mm -hmm. points. Every Mm -hmm. time. Guarantee, take it to the bank. You know, Fred Fred Wilson has blogged about this a couple times and then he and I got to, this might be seven years ago, I remember, he was giving me advice when I was trying to raise one of these early haystack funds. And he said, do deals programmatically with a couple of your good friends in the industry. And I was like, what are you talking about? Right. And he said that he and Bijan just had a working relationship with Fred at USV and Bijan at Spark. 
where they just felt like they could work together and they would see these $5 million A rounds in that era and they would each put in 2.5 and work together on them. And he said there was like, I'm paraphrasing here, but there was some nice governor to that where it's like, in order for Bijan to do the extension, he had to convince everyone and Fred had to convince everyone at USV to do the extension. Right. And, you know, And it just became cleaner and it was someone he could rely on. And I remember that advice because I w- it took a while for that to kind of sink in. But then I was like, yeah, we're playing repeated games. We don't know when each other's going to be valuable. We'll start sending deals to each other. So it kind of creates this nice kind of flywheel of like making your life a little bit easier. We should probably give 30 to 60 seconds to the devil's advocate point of view, which is if you are at a fund managing this high, high amount of dollars, and there's been so much late stage capital and founders have been trained to always get the best price and not give a club deal, you know, once it's working. I think there's intense pressure to get as much ownership up front, even at the cost of the syndication risk you mentioned, Paul. I think that has trumped and like subsumed the benefits. Well, Sam, one of the things that's amazing about this conversation, think about it. Talked about our fund size is your strategy. Talked about how you source a deal, which is nominally why we're here. Talk about product pickers versus people pickers. Talk about the decision-making process at the firm. I mean, you get it. I, I, I mean, this is catnip for me. I mean, I love this kind of stuff because, I, you know, we've all been on a journey to be like Steve or Mike Maples or whoever. Pick your person, right? There are these people who understand all the geometry of how the business works. And there's social geometry, like the syndicates. There's the financial geometry of like Steve building the position. There's so many ways to play it that I, I find fascinating. It's like a, it's a world to live in. So it's, it's awesome. So look, Samuel, we're almost out of time, yeah. but I do want to give you, I know you still got your list up there of your inbounds, outbounds. You got any final thoughts on sourcing, what, what you're really good at, what you've seen go right and wrong, kind of give you the final word on that. Because as I said, this has been a tour de force across yeah. the entire ecosystem, but want to get back to the topic we started on to end it. I think I would just say this would be more to people who are out there looking to get into the game or people who are in the game who want to improve this piece of their arsenal. And I would say that it all stems from someone's curiosity. Like if you're hungry to make money, you're going to suck at sourcing. <laughs> uh, if, I, if I got you, some people, you better not say that too loud. Yeah. Too. And if you're, if you're naturally curious about markets and what's happening in the world and learning and connecting with people and like, just even helping someone informally that you met, like a founder, you just, you know, you're never going to work with, but you like, and you just take the extra time to think about them or help them or follow up on something. That is the key thing to unlock. And I would say, if you don't have that, just go home. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Because you're not going to be fulfilled because you have to kiss too many frogs. It's too retail. There's too much head trauma. If you don't enjoy getting the call or you don't enjoy a difficult conversation or you don't enjoy, hey, how do I persuade this really interesting founder who doesn't listen to anybody? You know, if you don't like those little things, you're going to be 44 knowing that your firm's going to like you and you'll have no job prospects once the regime changes. Yeah, no other employable skills. I think that was the key thing to remember from earlier what you said. <laughs> I like that one, so, yeah. I cannot thank you I cannot thank you enough for being a guest. We could have gone on for oh, hours. Thank you. We're going to hit some of these other topics in a future podcast. 
But this has been phenomenal. Really a master class on what it's like to work across the entire ecosystem, sourcing, winning a deal, Semmel Shop, Haystack, can't thank you enough. Oh, thank yeah. you to everybody, Bullpen team. Thank you, Randy. Thank you for your wisdom. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Lunchbell VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time. <laughs>